Last November, uh, I traveled to Cuba to, not this one past, but the one before that in 2017, to host a uh, pastor's conference as we do each and every year. But that year was a little bit unusual in that we received a donation from someone outside of our church with the purpose of being able to add a second conference in that same week um, and to cover the cost to do that. So we, we went in with the plan of doing one in our usual location of Cologne and the other in for the first time to host a conference in Havana. And as I was wrapping up the final session of the first ever Havana conference, I was talking about those who were in a, to those who were in attendance about the attitudes that we sometimes express in prayer. And as we were wrapping up, I suggested to them that rather than always, always asking God to take our challenging and painful circumstances away, that we should also ask God to use our circumstances to accomplish something in us and to accomplish something in the kingdom. Because as I read scripture, I see that God uses the challenging seasons and circumstances of life to do some of the most deep-rooted work in us and the most accomplished things for his kingdom. And so, as I was sharing that, I challenged them to take on the attitude, make it count, rather than take it away. Now, this past October, almost a year later, I had the privilege of returning to the church in Havana, not doing a conference there this year, but I was invited to come to Havana. There's new leadership in the district, and they, we wanted to meet. And so I had the privilege of returning to the church and preaching on the Sunday morning. And after the service, I met this lady, and she began to tell me her story. She's a member of the Havana congregation, and she was present the year previously when I was wrapping up my final message. She was helping out at the conference, serving the pastors, their families, making sure everything was running smoothly. She was in the sanctuary when I was finishing my final session. And so, shortly after the conference was over, she was working at the church when a group of people arrived to deliver devastating news to her. When Cuba was settled by the Spanish, they brought with them slaves from Africa to harvest the sugarcane. And many of these slaves brought with them their religious practices and to this day, there are various levels of African witchcraft and animism that's practiced throughout Cuba. In fact, you may not know this, but Cuba is so well known for this that people actually fly to Cuba from other countries to learn and to be trained from some of these high-profile individuals and priests. And so there was a man 
involved in that level of satanic worship and, and, and witchcraft that wanted to excel to the next level of power. And to reach that next level, it was required of him to take a human life. And so this lady's teenage son, a follower of Jesus, was innocently walking down the street when he was attacked by this man and left to die in the street. And so this group of people had come to the church to find her, to deliver this news to this woman of God who was faithfully serving at the church to tell her what had happened with her son. And on that Sunday morning when I met her, she told me, she said, when the news came, all I could think of when I heard the news of my son's senseless and violent death were the words that you shared at the end of the conference. Make it count. And she said, I pray that prayer every day of my life. And that attitude is what helps me to face every single day, believing that somehow God could bring something good out of something so painful and horrific. It's not easy to express that type of attitude, to live with that perspective, especially when something so painful has taken place. Now, as we look at the letter to the Philippians, we see that the Apostle Paul not only lived this very perspective himself, but he's attempting to model it for the congregation in Philippi. And so today we're going to begin a series entitled, Make It Count, based on Paul's writing here in this letter. Now, if we go back a little bit to the book of Acts in chapter 16, we see there there's a record of a story of Paul and his, uh, his entourage, those other leaders that were with him, Paul having a vision in the night of a man from Macedonia asking him to come and to preach the gospel. And so Paul, consulting with his team, sharing his dream, they believed that this was the leading of the Holy Spirit, and so they set sail, and they ended up in Philippi to preach. Of course, as we follow the book of Acts, we see that the first encounter was with a woman named Lydia, who was a businesswoman, and and her household, who had met down by the river on the Sabbath, and Paul went there, and they, they accepted Jesus. Then they encountered a demonic slave girl in the street, and they set her free, and as a result of that, she joined their group, but as a result of that, they were put in prison. And then we see that in the night as they were praying, the Spirit of God and the messengers of God came, and the, and the chains fell off, and the doors were open, and the jailer thought that they were gone and that his life was in danger and he's about to take his own life. When Paul says, no, stop, we're still here. And through that whole process, he and his family come to Jesus. And so now what you have is this little group of people who form the nucleus 
of a church in Philippi. And Paul and his team pastor them for a little while, and they become strong and healthy in a growing church. And so 10 years later, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church, 10 years after he planted it. And Paul is in prison in Rome at the time that he's writing this letter. And it's very likely that he is chained to a Roman soldier while he's writing this letter. Now, if we understand the culture of the day, we know that basic provisions were not usually given to those who were put in prison in Paul's time. And so those in prison relied on family and friends and the grace of even strangers to bring them what they needed. As we read the letter, we see that the Philippian church, the church that Paul had planted, sent him a gift. And we assume it was a substantial gift because they've sent a messenger to hand deliver it and give it to him. We're told the messenger's name is Epaphroditus. And he sent not only to deliver the gift, but to also serve Paul in any way that's needed. And so Paul is writing this letter for a number of reasons, but one of the primary reasons is he wants to thank them, thank this little church that he planted 10 years before for their overwhelming kindness that they're showing to him while he's in this terrible scenario. The overriding theme of Philippians is joy, which is interesting since Paul is imprisoned and he's facing huge difficulties and hardship while he's writing this letter. And he even makes it clear, he says, listen, when this is all over, when my trial ends, I'm either going to be set free or they're going to kill me. There's no middle ground here. Just, it's going to be one or the other. But in the middle of knowing that, his faith is strong. Now, Paul is modeling a strong message here. And the message is, is this. If we are willing to adopt a make-it-count attitude in our relationship with Jesus, we'll experience joy when life does not turn out as we planned. Because joy is not, pay, is not based on external circumstances. Joy is not based on emotions. Joy is rooted in having confidence in our relationship with Jesus Christ, believing that God can take the most painful seasons of our lives and bring something good out of them. So let's take a look at the first few verses this morning. Philippians 1, 3 to 11. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day on to now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. 
For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In this first section of Philippians, Paul is showing us that when you adopt a make-it-count approach, it creates an environment where authentic community, authentic spiritual community can thrive. And there are three things that he does in, in light of his make-it-count attitude that creates this overwhelming sense of community, and I want us to consider them this morning. First, remember. Paul begins by expressing thanks to God as he remembers them. Now, the word remember here means to think about, to dwell on, to focus on, not just to have a recall and then it drift out, but to spend time dwelling on or focusing on. This community of believers, at this, point, at this moment, they are his focus. What is it that he's remembering? What is it that he's focusing on as he is thinking of them? Well, he says, I'm grateful for your partnership in the gospel. Now, this word partnership is an interesting word that we know from other places in Scripture. We, we probably, if you've been around the church, you've heard the term koinonia, fellowship. And so Paul is saying here, your partnership, your fellowship, your koinonia with me. It's the same word that Jesus used when he's walking along the Sea of Galilee and he invited the disciples to come and join with him to be a part of his mission. He's inviting them into koinonia. It's the same word that we see used in the book of Acts when we see in Acts chapter 2 where Luke gives us a summary of how amazing this church is because of how the Spirit of God is working amongst them and he talks about this incredible fellowship because they're looking after each other in such an incredible way that nobody is without anything, that one is willing to give up what they have to help the other, to support one another, to, to come alongside. And so what Paul is saying here is, I'm, I'm remembering your koinonia. I'm remembering what we have in common. That we join together, we have that in common. Now, having something in common is not just saying, oh, well, you like that and I like that, so we have that in common. It's not about likes and dislikes and similarities. What Paul is referencing here, the truth of this word, is a deep, unique relationship with one another that flows from a deep, unique relationship with Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus allows us to connect on a level that is unusual. And that's what he's talking about here. Their relationship with Jesus is the greatest thing that Paul and this congregation have in common. Their relationship with Jesus is what draws them to each other. Paul is in Rome. He's miles away. They are in Philippi. 
but their connection defies distance because they share a deep connection through the Holy Spirit. Remembering others, focusing on others, means putting others above oneself. And so here's Paul. He's imprisoned. He's potentially facing death. Things are not looking good. It would be normal for him to feel sorry for himself. It would be normal for him to make himself the center of attention, to make himself the priority, to think about his own situation and his own problems and to pray for himself. But instead, he chose to focus on them. He says, I'm thinking back from the first day until now. I remember Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer. He's reflecting on what they've grown to become. And he, as he does, he's filled with joy. Paul demonstrates here that focusing on others means choosing to celebrate the good in others. The Philippian believers were not perfect. They didn't have it all together. They had issues. They had problems. In fact, later on in the series, we're going to see that there are areas that Paul has to deal with. He has to confront. There's issues between members. It's not a perfect church. These are not perfect people. But when Paul remembered them, he chose to not let their flaws, their issues, their hang-ups dominate his focus. There were good things about them. And he chose to look at those things, to focus on those things. Focusing on others means seeing the potential of what they will be and can be in the future. Paul has tracked with them from the very beginning. He's seen what God has done in them and through them, and he's witnessed God changing their lives. But Paul looks beyond what he can see at this moment, and he knows that God will continue to work in their lives in the future. And so he refers to what God has done in them as a good work. He says, God's done a good work in you. That salvation that came to you in that moment of of conversion, God did a good work. But he's reminding them, God didn't just leave you there. He's working in your lives today, and he's going to continue to work in your life in the future. Paul is stating that God initiated salvation in the first place. God continues to work in them now, and God will complete what he started. And their salvation will finally be complete, he says, on the day that Jesus returns. God's not finished with them yet. He's saying, God didn't bring you this far to only bring you this far. And so Paul chose to remember them. Paul chose to focus on them instead of being embroiled in his own circumstances. And in doing so, he is modeling for them and for us that a make-it-count approach to faith creates authentic community amongst believers where others are elevated above ourselves. Now, there's a connection between believers in a church community that's difficult to communicate, sometimes difficult to understand or even explain. When it's lived out, 
the way Jesus intends it to be lived out. When a group of people come together because of their faith in Jesus, and they unite together in his cause, and they are empowered by his spirit, the community that results from that is powerful. Now, that community, like ours, may have varying ages. It may have varying cultures. It may have different genders. It may have varying social economic status represented here. We come from different backgrounds. We hold different education levels. And we all have different preferences. Yet when we come together, these things don't divide us. Our common faith in Jesus is greater than our differences. And he's the one that unites us as one. We all know that relationships break down when someone in the relationship chooses to focus on themselves over the other people they're in relationship with. We see that in families. We see it in marriages. We see it in friendships. We see it at work. We see it in the context of the church. Now, I'm not suggesting that we minimize our painful realities. I'm not suggesting that we deny the truth of our own personal circumstances. But what I am suggesting is this. Only when we are willing to choose, only when we are willing to consider others above ourselves, will we know true community in this church community. True community will result in a joy that is hard to explain as we celebrate one another, as we celebrate what God is doing in each person's life. Now, let's be honest. When we're around other people for any length of time, we quickly see their flaws, their issues. There's things that irritate us about them. Some, t- some people, it takes all of three seconds. Others, it might take a little while. But the truth is, human nature is such that our tendency is to focus on the things that annoy us, right? And the result is, we lose sight of the good qualities. And so we need to see the good in others. We need to make an effort to celebrate the good things in other people's lives. God is not finished with us yet. He saved us. He's continuing to work in us. And someday when we are with him, he will finish the work. But until that time when Jesus returns, we are a work in progress. We have flaws. We are going to fail. We're going to experience setbacks. But God has not brought us this far to only bring us this far. God's not finished with us yet. And we need to begin to see each other not just as we are, but for what we will someday be, the potential that God has put in us. Now, that's not a justification to excuse our lack of spiritual maturity. Well, you know, just excuse the fact that I'm spiritually immature because God's working on me. It's not an excuse to justify negative attitudes or a lack of growth, or a need for accountability in our lives, 
That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is this. We need to see God's potential in people. What will be, not just what is at this moment. When we think of people in these ways, it strengthens the community. A make-it-count approach to life creates an authentic faith community as we put others above ourselves. Secondly, love. Not only did Paul remember the Philippian believers, focus on them, but he loved them. He told them, he says, you're in my heart. Well, how did Paul evidence his love for them? How did he love them? He said, we suffer together. That's that's how I've shown you my love. I've suffered together with you. I am in chains. And I'm in chains because I am doing God's work. I'm preaching the gospel. A gospel that you yourselves have experienced and has changed your life. And he says, I'm soon going to have to defend myself in front of the Roman officials. And he uses these words, defending and confirming the gospel, which are legal terms to give defense of the gospel. And he says, while I might be the one who's on trial, you're on trial with me. We're in this together. And the outcome is not going to just affect me. It's going to affect you too. If the outcome is good, you'll benefit. If the outcome is bad, you'll be affected. I want you to notice that Paul expressed his love for all of them. Every last one of them. Paul wants to make it clear here that the love he feels for them is for all of them. In fact, there are at least nine instances in this short letter where Paul uses the words, you all. If he was from Georgia, he'd say y'all. You all. In fact, I think three times in what I read this morning, he used that term. Perhaps there are some people in the Philippian church who wonder and question whether Paul loves them. Perhaps at some point he needed to discipline some of them or hold some of them accountable for their behavior. But Paul wants to stress here, there's no favoritism. God is his witness. God can testify to his heart. God knows his heart. He says, I love every one of you with the affection of Jesus. This is is a beautiful statement. What Paul is in essence saying in the original language is this, I love you to my bowels. That's exactly what he's saying. I love you to my bowels. In Hebrew culture, the bowels are the place of tender affection and kindness and compassion and mercy. In Greek culture, it's the heart. We refer to the heart as the seat of emotions, but but in the Hebrew thinking, it was the bowels. Paul is saying that it is Jesus in him that enables him to love them so deeply, so intensely, so completely, so inclusively. It's the love of Jesus in him. Paul chose to love all of them with the love of Jesus. And in doing so, he's modeling for them that if you 
choose to love when you could be overwhelmed with your own, if you choose this make it count attitude, you create this environment of love which feeds authentic community. Now, we know it's possible to remember or focus on the needs of other people without, without having them in our hearts. We can remember people, we can think about them, but not really truly love them. But I want us to know this morning that true community flourishes because of love. Jesus said, the world is going to know who is my disciple by their love, one for another. When you are in authentic community, when you genuinely love others, when one suffers, we all suffer. And we talked about that last week. And the truth is, there are many of us in this place this morning, and we are suffering. We're discouraged. We feel hopeless, helpless, like we're facing incredible odds. And sometimes instead of seeing ourselves as a part of something bigger, we see ourselves as just individuals in the crowd. And we tend to carry things on our own. We think we tend to carry things alone. But the truth is, we are here for each other. We're not just individuals in a crowd. We are the body of Christ. And when one suffers, we all suffer. We can't take each other's place as much as we might want to and say, if I could trade places with you, I would. We can't take each other's place. But we can stand with one another. We can stand together. We can encourage one another. We can pray for one another. We can love one another. Now, it's easy to say, I love everybody. I've heard people say that. I just love everybody. I just think, yeah, you're full of it. When I say it, I don't mean like a swear word. Like just, you know, stuff. But the truth is, some people are difficult to love. They're difficult to love. Love that like Jesus calls us to. It's not something we can work up. It's not something we can will or put on. It's not something we can pretend. To love the way Jesus wants us to love is something that God has to do in us and through us by His Holy Spirit. We can't will it into action. We had to be willing to participate, but it's God that generates that kind of love in us by His Spirit. Because i got to tell you, I've met a lot of people in this life that outside of the Holy Spirit, they're not getting my love. You know what I'm saying? Uh-uh, you're off the list. But then God prompts and says, right, that He loves them and He wants to love them through us. It's important to understand that Jesus channels his love through us. I could really get off on a tangent here, but I, I'm going to obey myself and not do it. 
But I just wish we could visibly see Jesus living in this culture in our day and time. Some of us would have some real issues with Jesus and his love. Real love is evidenced in a genuine concern for others. A willingness to forgive others. A desire to esteem and build others up. To help others. Everyone. Y'all. We can love everyone when we allow the love of God to flow through us. That's the only way we can do it. We can live a make-it-count life when we allow the love of Jesus to flow through us to others despite what we might be experiencing ourselves. Finally, pray. Paul found joy in thinking of them and loving them, but also in praying for them. In true community, in genuine relationship, we not only think of others, we not only love others, but we pray for them. Paul knows that God's community thrives when members of the community are growing in spiritual maturity. And so for that reason, that's his primary prayer for those in the Philippian church. Prayer that they would You know, he's expressing a desire to see them grow and mature in their faith. Because that's the key to so many other things being unlocked in our lives. And so Paul prays that their love for one another will grow, may abound more and more, he says. It literally means it would exceed fixed measure. You know, there's so many things that we set as the measure you know, this week I went in the grocery store. I use reusable bags because, you know, I really believe that God gave us this earth as a gift and it is our responsibility to take care of it. And so, um, so I try to use them. But once in a while, they get left in the wrong vehicle or they don't get put back. You know what I'm saying? And I have to buy the bags, right? And they inevitably ask you a question that no man can answer. They begin and they say, how many bags would you like? I looked at her and I thought, I have no idea. How about we bag them, count them after, and then charge me five cents a bag? But I don't know what the fix, I don't know how many bags it's going to take to exactly fit this many items. I don't know. I have no idea. And sometimes I'll just say, I need 10, but I only needed seven. And now I got three bags, 15 cents wasted. But then I graciously, in an act of witnessing, pass them on to the person next to me. A fixed number. How do we know? Well, when it comes to love, sometimes, you know, there's this limit, there's this ceiling. And Paul says, no. Exceed the fixed measure. Love at a level beyond what you can even imagine you can love. Wow. The Philippian believers are obviously already, they've already displayed a love for God and a love for others. But Paul recognizes that there is potential for them to love more than they have ever experienced to this point. 
He wants their love to increase to the point that it reaches its maximum capacity and then begins to overflow. Because love is never intended to be stored up. Love is never intended to reach its capacity and just pondered in our lives. Love is always intended to fill up and to overflow and to pour out. Now Paul then connects love to knowledge and insight. The word knowledge here is a deeper understanding of your faith. He's saying that there's a connection between understanding and loving. The greater the understanding of who Jesus is, a greater of your understanding of what Jesus has done in your life, a greater understanding of what Jesus desires for us equals a greater outpouring of love. I think this is why people who are the most graceless are people that have so much sin in their lives. That's my theory. Because you can't pour out what you have not allowed to happen in your own life. You just can't. There's a connection between understanding and loving. When you understand who Jesus is, when you understand who you were without him, when you understand what he's done for you and the love you've been the recipient of, you can't help but love others that way. You can't. And he says there's a connection between insight and loving. Insight is not learned. Insight is wisdom given supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit is allowing you to love in ways that in yourself you wouldn't be able to love. And so as their love for God and others increases, it's going to require an increase in the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Paul prays that they will increase in their character. He's praying for them to grow in their love so they can, in result, increase in their character. And he sets this discernment between the context of the day of Christ. He's saying, until the return of Christ, the second coming when Jesus comes back. Because this is a time when every believer will stand before God and give account of their lives. And so he is linking, he is linking the accountability of our character to that moment that Jesus comes back. Because Paul is suggesting here that the reality of one day we are going to be accountable before God for one's own life. And the thought of that, the very thought of that, that someday we will stand before him, Paul says, that should have a purifying effect on your life. And so Paul is praying for that. Paul wants them to grow in God so they can learn to make the best choices possible. He wants them to be the best people of God they can possibly be, pure and blameless. This word he uses for pure means to expose a garment, to hold it up to the sun, because only when you hold it up to the sun will the stains be revealed. The word pure means when it's held up to the sun, there is no stain. It is clean. It means honesty. It means integrity. Being pure means there's nothing concealed that is not honoring to God. 
The word blameless comes from the root, causing someone to stumble by putting something in their way. He says, not only do I want you to be pure, but I don't want there to be anything in your life that's not pure, that's concealed, because when these things are exposed, and they will eventually be exposed, when they are exposed, they negatively affect those who are around you, and it causes them to stumble. And Paul says, you need to be considerate of that. And so Paul's praying that there would be nothing in their lives. And he prays that they will produce fruit. The image here is of an orchard whose trees are weighted down with good fruit, ready for harvest. Fruit is evidence of a life in the tree. The fruit of righteousness is the evidence of the Holy Spirit truly at work in our lives. A transformed life, a life that is growing, produces evidence that God is at work in us. And so Paul chose to pray for them, that their love for others would grow to the point of overflowing, that they would increase in the character of Jesus, and they would produce fruit with their lives as the Holy Spirit worked in them. Folks, in authentic community, we not only think of others, we not only love others, but we pray for others. We need to be praying for our church community, that our love for each other and our love for the community around us outside these doors would grow. That it would increase so much that we can't contain it. I want people to say, I visited Evangel on Sunday. I don't want that to be my church because they just love too much. That's my goal. That's my dream. That it would increase so much we can't contain it and flow over to the lives around us. You know, sadly, a lot of church leadership conversations these days are focused around where do we put the barriers and the boundaries to keep our love from going too far? Not sure it's possible that our love can go too far. We need to pray for a deeper understanding of our faith. Praying that the Holy Spirit will open our minds, helping us understand the truth of God's Word. And we need to pray not only for the Holy Spirit to lead our lives and to give us insight when we need direction and words to say, but we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to open our arms to a hurting world, to a broken world, and embrace them with the overwhelming love of Jesus. Growing love will impact our faith community and those who are not even a part of our faith community if we allow the love of God to just pour out of us. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to give us discernment so that we are making the right choices, praying for one another that we will make the right choices. And we need to pray for each other in this way because there are always some, hear me, there are always some, no matter how big or small the church is, there are always some that we love that are among us that are living with things concealed. Trust me, they are. Things that will hurt them eventually. Things that will hurt others eventually. Because no one sins alone. Those closest to us are impacted by our sin. They are caused to stumble by our sin. And so Paul's encouraging us here, pray for one another that we don't stumble and fall. 
Paul says the fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus. Well, this is important because it's common for us to try and produce the evidence of fruit in our lives. Oh, I'm just trying to produce that fruit. If I just say the right things, if I do the right things, if I dress the right way, if I go to the right things, it'll appear like that's the fruit. Folks, only the Holy Spirit can produce fruit. There's a danger in being a believer. And the danger is to default to activity-associated Christianity and to try and demonstrate our spirituality through that instead of letting the fruit of our spirituality flow from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can easily switch our emphasis from who God is creating us to be to what it is that we are doing and we associate it with spiritual fruit. What we should do should flow out from who we are, what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. Only when the Holy Spirit is producing fruit in our lives will we be able to live a make-it-count life. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. A make-it-count approach to faith creates authentic spiritual community. An authentic community thrives when we consider others above ourselves, when we, we love with the love of Jesus and we pray for one another. And if we're willing to adopt a make-it-count attitude in our relationship with Jesus, We'll experience joy when life doesn't turn out as we planned. You know, the interesting thing about church dynamic is sometimes God by his spirit leads us to do something. And it's so powerful and exciting that we want to make that happen all over again. (laughs) Last Sunday was a powerful morning here. It was a powerful morning. And I'd love to have one of those mornings every week. But I learned a long time ago in ministry, you could never come back the following week trying to make what happened the week before happen again. It's not how it works. Now, some of you said we should do this every week, or some said we should do it once a month. You can't schedule this stuff. But let me tell you what I've been preaching to you for 14 years now almost This altar is always a place where you can come and stand with as many people as you want and wait on God and pray for each other. I've been almost begging for that. (laughs) So I'm not going to schedule it. But it's open any time. And this morning, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come, and I'm going to invite you now to stand with us. And for those of you who are here this morning and you want prayer, I'm going to invite you to come. And for those of you who just want to come and stand here for a while and seek God and maybe pray for each other, come and do it. It's available, but I'm not going to schedule it. I'm not going to plan for it on certain weeks of certain months. Just as God leads you in that, if that's what you desire this morning and you want to do, you could do it. Because God wants to meet us every time we meet. And it's not always the same, but sometimes it is. So just 
Allow God to minister to your heart this morning. Our prayer team is going to come. And if you're here today and you want us to pray with you, it'd be our honor to pray with you this morning. We want to encourage you. We want to pray for you. We want to continue to build an authentic community of faith here where we can we can put others above ourselves, where we can, we can love each other beyond measure, where we can, we can pray for each other. That's what we want to be. That's who we are. And we want to continue to feed into that this morning. So as Tyler and the team leads us, if you'd like to be prayed for this morning specifically, would you come? If you want to just come and wait and hang out, you can do that too.